Westmount, let us just continue in that reflection, in that worship, and take our copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 1. We've reflected on it, we have sung it, now let's open it, we'll read it in a moment, Psalm 1. As you do so, just some opening remarks, especially as we come to this week, church, we have arrived at the final stop on our series on biblical clarity. This is the last stop today. Now, summer winds down, a return to Romans awaits us in a few weeks. Remember, we have paused in this season of transition and change. We've endeavored to address the pressing issues that have faced us this season, from discipline and repentance, membership and marriage, through to corporate worship and polity. All I trust with confusion clearing and Bible backing and instruction solidifying. I pray that. This morning we look at the biblical reality that really is, loved ones, the foundation for everything we've studied this summer. And as we've sung this morning, it's the foundation for everything. It is God's way. It's God's way. Now, I understand that such a topic, I recognize this, preparing this week, such a topic as you hear, it sounds very simplistic, doesn't it? Jason, are you taking us back to Sunday school? Are you moving backwards? It sounds very simplistic to some. And I want you to know this morning, it is. It is very simplistic, more than we even realize. Very binary. However, simplicity may equal theory. Track with me. Simplicity may equal theory, but it doesn't always equal practice, does it? Beloved, God's way has implications. Do we understand that this morning? God's way is not just sung, professed, held up, memed. God's way has implications. When you came in the door and when you go out it. Does that make sense? God's way has implications. If it doesn't, you're wasting your time this morning. Right? You're wasting your time. God's way is a life lived. Sung it, read it, prayed it as such. It is confusing, to say the least, when people claim God and live their own way. Do you not agree? It's very confusing to a watching world, is it not? Not to mention not glorifying to the God of all creation. That is the malady we, Westmount, have faced over this past year with issues that are just so black and white. It's the real plague, the real plague on local churches these past three and a half years. Here's the reality You can claim Jesus is Lord, but really Caesar was, wasn't he? Caesar was Lord. And saints identifying with God, yet not living God's way, is as old as humanity. As such, precious saints, let us reset, renew, and re-engage, church, on what exactly it means to live God's way. I hope you're beginning to see the need for this booster. And again, there's nothing new here. 
I've said that many times in this series. There's nothing new. It's important reminders, very, very important reminders. As Jerry reminded us today, and I want us to catch this vision. It's been so good what the guys have done so far. If you are in Christ here today, you are the bride. You didn't just read Psalm 45 and say, Jerry did a great job. You are the bride. Clothed in robes of beauty and splendor. Already made right for the king, right? How easy then we put on rags and pajama pants. And tolerate that. And say it's okay. Now I want to be clear as you can see. Coming out the gate this morning. We are in progress. We are not perfect. But we are purchased. Robed in his. Why do we not live that way? Why do we not live that way? Reminders that are so crucial in this season. As I've said so many times. In an environment and an oxygen that would have nothing to do with a message like this, would it? Beloved, I've heard it from many of you in this series. You with me are astonished at how low the bar is set within the church, are you not? It's beyond incredible anymore how much is tolerated by the bride. So our study is the last today in this series and the most critical this Lord's Day. Psalm 1 sets the context. Let's look down in it and the simplicity as the Psalter opens. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we pray in light of those words that we would understand the two ways and live the one right way, your way. Oh God, help us and encourage those that are living your way. That is our prayer this morning. Amen. There are two ways and two ways only to live, man's way or God's way. You see that? Two ways only. Psalm 1 provides the subheadings, the way of the wicked, or what? The way of the righteous. That's it, Westmount. Look at Psalm 1 with me right now. Do you see a third way? Do you see a half and half way? Do you see a toe in the water one way and an arm in another? Do you see a gray way to live, an obscure way to live, an ambiguous way to live? Do you see that? No. Every way, every walk, every one is living one of those two ways. Now listen to different degrees, right? Not everyone is a serial killer, and not everyone is a perfect saint, of course, yes. But you are living one of those two ways, very simply. The Bible presents, listen, this over and over again. Were you like me as we responded in reading Proverbs 4? We could have done Proverbs 3, Psalm 1, and I hope we'll see this morning. This is the repeated refrain in the Bible. Two ways, two ways, 
highlighting the way that man ought to live God's way over and over and over again. Psalm 1, as Jerry mentioned, the presentation of the ultimate man and his righteous living. That's our launching pad today. We will walk through the Bible this morning, and we are going to note God's way. And we do this, again, as a very important, critical booster and need for us today as this series comes to a close. On our journey, we'll observe a number of key characteristics of God's way. That's what I want you to note this morning. These are fundamental descriptions, attributes of the righteous that we would agree, I believe, are in neglect today, that are suppressed today, and as we'll soon see, even twisted. So let's begin with the first characteristic of God's way. God's way is clear. God's way is clear. Turn to Genesis 2. God's way is clear. Listen, God's way is clear as the beginning will show us. Once again, we start with the old familiar and so easily forgotten. You know this context, so I won't linger there. Let's pick up the instruction in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, newly created man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Beloved, we have looked at that command countlessly here at Westmount the past decade, have we not? You almost know that off by heart, I pray. You say, yes, I know that. Jason, you go there so often. And again, it's clear, isn't it? Can we just nestle with that? To be? It's, it's, it's a clear command, is it not? There's nothing confusing about what Yahweh said. Look, look at it. Eat liberally. You're free to do that in abundance. But that one, and not just anyone, Yahweh just says, watch this. No, that one is harmful. In fact, not only is it harmful, it brings death. So avoid that one, but eat the many. That's it. God's way, note this, is not just freedom, but it is protection from death. Do we see that? God's way protects, we could say. However, as crystal clear as God's way is, note the elements that confuse it. Just simple walkthrough. Look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, note this, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Enter, twisting in confusion. Do you see that? The response should have been easy. No, serpent, no deceiver. God didn't say that, but said this. It would be emblazoned, still fresh in their minds. Eve proceeds to add to God's way. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's true. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then look at this. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's one thing where the confusion enters. Note this in verse 6. Enter the senses. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that she was to be desired to make one wise, what did she do when her senses were in overload? She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You almost feel the impulse there, don't you? That nothing can control this impulse. I just must see, take, and eat. I have to do that. Now we must pause here to note a few things 
about God's way. Again, there's just so much more we could comment on there, not the least of which is Satan claiming to know what God knows in verse 4. God knows when you eat of it, such and such. So much there we could unpack, but we must control ourselves in this study. What we need to, to comment on here is that God's way is not unclear. And that's the point. It's very clear, right, what God says. But look what blurs the clarity. Look at it again. Look at this account. Other voices blur. Satanic voices confuse. Did God really say? And that carries right, that refrain that's our way carries right through to today, doesn't it? Right? Did God really say that we must gather? Let's pull out Hebrews 10 and look at it again. Did he really say that? I know I preached that two years ago, but let's give it a fresh look. Did God really say marriage is for life? Come on, let's get real. How about the blurring from guidance and reliance on our flesh and senses? How about this one? Did God really say when it feels so right? Have you heard that one? How could he have said that if it feels so right? How could God have said when it looks so good? And by the way, many people agree with me. So, as I heard recently someone say, I don't care what the Bible says. Many people agree. That's a true story. God's way, his word is clear. Satan is not. Satan's way is confusion. Satan's way says, I don't know what a woman is. I don't have no idea. Man's way is confusing. I just read someone sent me something about language yesterday. Branches, and a few of you listen to some of these outputs, just saying language is okay. All language is on board. It needs a context, whatever that means. Language is binary. It's either filth or it upbuilds. Ephesians 4.29 says what? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. We sang a bunch of lyrics today about that, right from God's word. This is the confusion today. Speak however you want. Once you leverage it for the Lord, it's okay. It's nonsense. And beloved, the more we listen to other voices or let our senses lead, you too, hear me, you too, one day, maybe right now, will say, did God really say? Maybe it's going through your mind right now. It won't be an overt thing, but it's going to be often. As you're going to bed, as you're journaling God's word, did God really say? I was brought up that way. My church taught that, but did God really say? Exodus 20. I ask you, is God clear when he says, Exodus 20, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Is that clear? Very, very clear. Ecclesiastes, verse 12. By the way, Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon, after a life of living his way. I encourage you to read the book and see how that goes. A whole life. said, I just gave myself to myself. Now, what does he say at the end of the matter when all has been heard? The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
And then my son, in the spirit of Proverbs 3, Proverbs 4, beware of anything beyond these. In other words, in any way beyond this way, of making many books there is no end. Is that not true? And much study is a weariness of the flesh. And then this, this is his conclusion. The end of the matter, all has been heard. What is it, Solomon? You've given yourself, you've done everything. You've tasted and seen the world. It is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Well, why? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God's way is very clear. Beloved, living God's way is not a matter of confusion. It's not a matter of there's a lack of clarity. Listen, living God's way is a matter of what? Obedience. That is a necessary return to Sunday school, isn't it? Trust and obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way. Next, God's way is countercultural. Turn to Exodus 19. God's way is countercultural, not only as the beginning shows us, but as the history of the Old Testament teaches us. God's way is countercultural. Again, here is a book that does not need any introduction. We have studied it, you know it well. Exodus, as we have studied it, we've commented on the law that flowed. We commented on Exodus 20, the law, and that's the law that flows after this chapter. And again, you know that context. Well, let's just pick up God's word here, very familiar passage. Exodus 19, verse 4. The freely, newly delivered people of Israel, right? What now? This is the context hanging there. What now? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a holy nation. God's way says, Israel, you are to be a holy nation. What have we studied with holiness? What do we know about a holy nation? That means a nation taken out of the world, set apart, and fully devoted to Yahweh, right? Very simple. In other words, what's your picture? If they're to be a holy nation, they will be a different nation. They will look different. God's way then, and this is so crucial, Westmount, is not like the nations. Does that make sense? God's way is not like the nations in any way. In fact, we would say this, says Exodus 19, God's way is counter the nations. See that? Whatever God's way is, it's not that way. It's not the way of the nations. It's counter that. Well, following this, of course, in Exodus 19, is a whole table of law living that is precisely that. A way of living that's contra the world around them, Israel. This makes sense. Continues to be true. Yet, and here it is, key yet, God's people could not help their fixation on living the way of the nations. In 1 Samuel 8, which we touched on last week, it records this desire for the nations. Verse 5, remember, God's people demand, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Horizontal fixation. Listen, this is not just an Israel thing. Nation lust still burns within God's people. And I believe you know that. God's people continue. This is a plague we can't shake out of ourselves. God's people continue to want to live like the nations. We want the language of the nations. 
We want the amusement of the nations. We want the dress, the music, and the look of the nations. We want the nations. Beloved, we are from the nations, but we are not to live like the nations. And that's nothing new, right? Says Jesus. In fact, turn with me for this little excursus for a moment. John 17. This is not something that we feel would be really helpful to our practice at Westmount. You know what? Let's try this. No. What does Jesus instruct his people? How about this in his prayer to the Father? Listen to the way he characterizes his people. This is to his apostles, but by extension give way to us. Let's just pick it up in verse 15. Listen carefully to what Jesus says. I do not ask you, this is Father, Jesus, Son to Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, right, mission field, but that you keep them from the evil one. Do you see that? They'll be in the world, but kept from the evil one. They are not of the world. Stop there. They are not of the world. Christian, you are not of the world. Keep reading. Just as I am not of the world. Logical connection. Christ is not of the world. Christian, you're not of the world. Right? Logical connection. And then this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, so good here. This is the call to church. To be sanctified in his word. And of course, he left his word. If we're going to be a set-apart people, a holy nation, a counter people, this is the manual to do that. And is this not true? This book in front of you, look down at it, is being stripped from every single thing you know today. Is that not true? The world wants none of this manual. The world wants none of these living words. But God calls you to stick close to them. And as we give in to temptation to abandon in the did God really say, we, we won't be set apart. Now listen, this is not just Jesus. This is a call to the church coming after Jesus, those first disciples. Listen to Ephesians 4, 17. In the hinge verse, after Paul gives the gospel in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you, these are believers, must no longer walk, what? As the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Look at it, a Gentile, that word means nations, that way is futility, says the New Testament, and not to mention very counter to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. Beloved, if you were try, especially today, I think it's been true in every generation, but in 2023, if you tried a little dangerous experiment and just said, let me just try and live the world's way and still follow Jesus, I'm here to tell you it's impossible. These things are antithetical to each other. So you can't blend them. You can't sprinkle with a little bit of world. It doesn't work that way. Westmount, living God's way is not about being culturally relevant. It's about being holy, set apart, fully devoted to him. Thirdly, God's way is comfort. We turn now to the poetry books to help us. God's way is comfort. Turn to Psalm 119. We could walk through this whole psalm to illustrate this point. But the psalms, as we think about them, allow us really to go anywhere to show us this. The psalms reflect the attitude toward God's word. and So many of the psalmists reveal this. But let's zero in. This Psalm 119 has it everywhere. 
Let's just pick a spot in verse 49 in the middle. Pick a stanza and we're going to zero in. Look at it with me. Remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Stop there. The psalmist says, look at verse 50, that God's promise is his comfort in affliction. He also says, verse 52, when he thinks of God's ancient rules, he what? He takes comfort. Again, we could pull out and examine this whole psalm, but let's just do this. Walking, We're in the Psalter. Turn to Psalm 18. I just want us to see this, just a little flavor. This little pocket from Psalm 18 to 36. Psalm 18, look at verses 1 to 3. It says what? I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. What comfort. Go to Psalm 23. Flip over there. You know this. You know it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Go to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? What comfort. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Could there be anything more comforting? What about Psalm 36? Flip over there. Verses 7 to 9. Love this. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Now just note the comfort in these words. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Now much more we could say here in the poetic books. But let's just pause and note this. Think about what we just read. There's nothing in there about finding comfort in rocks or in green grass or in feast or in drink or anything at all in the earth. Did you catch that? You don't take comfort in those things. The comfort is found where? In God. Our refuge and strength. The comfort is in God, right? That's why the psalmist has comfort where you say, why can't I have this comfort? The psalmist comforts in God, not on earth. You say, well, well, yes, amen. And I say, amen. And all God's people quickly say, amen, right? Everyone says, yes, amen to that. But beloved, can I say to you, leading the charge in this, by the way, again, it always has to assault me before it does anything else. Here's where the confusion is with the comfort of God. Track with me. I'm with you. Here's the confusion. Do you turn to God for comfort? I just want you to pause. I really want you to answer that question yourself. Do you honestly turn to God for comfort? Is God truly your refuge when life hits? Is he? Or do you turn to some form of escape? A screen? A food? A different friend? A getaway? Is that your escape? 
Do you turn to medicine, good in its right context, do you turn to medicine for soul comfort? Do you want to build your own bunker? Just get away from it all. When fear grips you, you know that feeling, you know what I'm talking about, when it turns your stomach upside down. When fear grips you, what is your instinctive turn? God's way is comfort. God's way turns to him, creator of heaven and earth, sovereign over all things. God's way is comfort, which means you turn always and in everything to him, almighty God. It means, yes, beloved, yes, the well-worn paths are the well-worn paths for a reason. You pray, you read God's word, you be with God's people. Rinse, repeat, do it again. You pray, you read God's word, you be with his people, and on it goes. That's what you do. That way, and only that way, brings true, lasting comfort. And listen, this is an ancient call. Listen to God declare this truth to his ancient people. Isaiah 51. Listen carefully. This is what he's saying to a people, right? In anguish, reaching for comfort in all these other wrong places. I am he, verse 12, who comforts you, Israel. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Don't you love that? Who are you that you're afraid of man? I'm God. The son of man, you're afraid of him who is made like grass. What an indictment. And have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God. Love this. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. There's sovereignty. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I've put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. That should be a lullaby for God's people, shouldn't it? And then you sleep peacefully. There it is. God's way is comfort. Not just the Old Testament. Listen to the New. What do we do, Lord? What do we do? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But I find it so elusive, that comfort. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So simple, isn't it? And listen, I sojourn with you with those struggles, but praise God, the prescription is simple. And beloved, listen, any perceived comfort in earthly things then, which is impeding us doing these things, is temporal. Let us be reminded it's fleeting, and we need to hear that it's empty. Let us not turn to vain things for comfort, because we get what we ask for, right? When we go to cash in, we get nothing. Living God's way is not about earthly refuge. It's about the stronghold of Yahweh, the refuge of God. The world has no comfort to offer, so let's turn to him. 
God's way is clear, it's countercultural. God's way is comfort, and God's way now is contrite, as the prophets will show us now. God's way is contrite. Let's turn to the prophets. Turn to the book of Amos. You will find Amos tucked between Joel and Obadiah. Turn to Amos 4. Amos 4. Of course, the history of Israel is well documented in the Old Testament. As much as we have this enduring picture of their sin and backsliding, what was often the context to that was a lot of prosperity. And this happens often with the wicked, doesn't it? Asaph almost fell for this. The wicked seemed to be prospering. Well, the north and the south, when Amos was writing, they were prospering. And you can imagine when you prosper, you tend to tune out God, don't you? Prosperity has a way of doing that. Well, here, during that prosperity and in that tuning out, Israel, and this is one of the hallmarks here in prosperity, there are people characterized by hard-heartedness. Sin increased, prone to their own way, not God's way. So the indictment, here comes this little shepherd to indict, right, the Israelites. This prophet Amos sums it up. Let's pick it up in verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Now note this. This is the refrain. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city and drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. There's the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Simple paraphrase, I was trying to get your attention, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. You must notice that, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I want you to see that repeated over and over. The transgression, the punishment, yet what? You did not return to me. In spite of God sending judges to deliver, kings to lead, and prophets to rebuke and call back, back from living their way, the way of wickedness and backsliding, and turn back to Yahweh to repent, In spite of that, they would not return. Other prophets, and we think here, the prophet Jeremiah says the same. Listen to Jeremiah 5, verse 3. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. There it is in some. You've consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. This is Jerusalem refusing to repent. They've made their faces harder than rock, and here it is, says Jeremiah. They have refused to repent. They refuse to repent. Isaiah says the same. In fact, he opens his book, not only with that indictment, but then this call. You know these verses. Listen to them in context of being called back, prophetic callback. Verse 18, chapter 1, Come now, Israel, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In other words, repent. Prophet Ezekiel, exact same thing. He presents the call most simply. You know this. Ezekiel 18.32 says what? 
Turn and live. Turn and live. That's it. Beloved, God's people are a delivered people, saved to worship him, to live for him. And in our context today, as Christians, saved to be sanctified, which means when we sin and we're not glorified yet, this is not a message. I pray you don't walk away thinking this. Go out there and and you will be sinless. That's not what this is saying. When we sin, not when we tolerate sin, when we sin, we repent. Because that's what God's people do. And thus our lives must be characterized by repentance. Are we repentant people? Jerry Bridges, men and women, you'll study his book this fall, one of his books this fall. He said this, very helpful. As Christians, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's so helpful, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, I need the gospel every day. In fact, if I was being honest with you, I need it every hour. I need to preach the gospel to myself. We need it. And we need to be, as Christians, leading a life of repentance. One of the men prayed this morning, praying for the service, saying, take down the proud. And and, and can that be, even in our own hearts, take down the proud. Because God's way is contrite. It's not prideful, it's contrite. God's way is a life of repentance, humility, and honest recognition of who we are. And what are we? We're sinners saved by grace. Amen. But that besetting sin, that flesh is still present. What are we learning in Romans, right? Beloved, stubbornness, hard-heartedness, listen, is not the mark of the Christian. Stubbornness and hard-heartedness is the sign and the mark and the characteristic of Pharaoh and Pharisee, not of the Christian. It is not the way of God. God's way is contrite. God's way gets low and stays low. God's way is humble and repentant. And note that proud way, by the way, and we have to comment on it. That proud way, do you know, it never ends. It continues right to the end, truly. Listen to this. When the end is coming down on the earth, and it's the very last chance for the wicked to repent. Let me just give you a snapshot. Revelation 16, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Here's the judgment being poured out on the earth. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Now that's one thing, right? But then this, they did not repent and give him glory. While the earth gives way and they bathe in fire. In judgment, they refuse to repent. Now that gives you a glimpse as to what's going on today. This refusal to repent. Repent. Westmount, you know this. We've seen a refusal to repent not only damage one's own body, but damage bodies around. We've seen that. We've seen a refusal to repent lead to more sin. And this is why this is so important. God has always called his people to repent. David and I met this week reflecting on this past season, just sharing various bits of feedback and analysis and whatnot. What is telling is you will hear the hard-hearted say, especially Westmount these days, all you hear about is sin. That's all you hear about. David and I just looked at each other. David made the comment that, well, 
Well, that's, A, what the Bible says. This is what we see over and over again. But you know what the B is to that? As I look out on a room like this, you know what the B is to that? At times, I've had some of you, and you know who you are, say, Jason, why are you letting up? Why, why do you let up on us? I just think it's funny in this moment because it proves a point. The hard-hearted will continue hard-hearted, won't they? And every single word, even joy, will seem like a curse word to them. But the faithful, you, you love God's word, and you want to yield to it, and you want to repent. I pray as I just pause for this intermission, be encouraged. You're the remnant here that want to follow the Lord. And I love how you're begging. You're like, don't let up. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Living God's way does not hide. It doesn't run. It doesn't blame. It doesn't rationalize. It doesn't make excuses. God's way repents. God's way repents every time. Next, God's way is costly. As Jesus taught us, God's way is costly. Turn to Luke 14. God's way is costly. The solution to hard-heartedness came, of course. The one that would take on hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. The Christ, the anointed one, the perfect son of God. He came to redeem. And that redemption of you and me, Christian, came at such a high cost. It cost Christ his very life. And with that life laid down, the wrath taken on him, That right? Remember, Romans, in our place, he took it on our sin, the likeness of our sin. That is the price that Christ paid for you and me, Christian. He died for you, calls you into light. And as he called his own to himself, it was not to come down to a river experience. It was not come and feel really good for a moment. Like many of you are testifying, sensual conversion. His call was not only to save your life, but listen, here's the call of God. Lose your life. That's the call of God, isn't it? Lose your life. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you does not renounce all that he has. See that? Cannot be my disciple. Renouncing all that he has. Beloved, the one who paid the price for us calls us to live a life that will cost us. Now let's be clear. Not a cost that is salvation. That's only Christ. But this is a cost that flows from the implications of our salvation. Following Jesus, beloved, is costly. And if you're here this morning and you haven't felt that cost, then you need to examine yourself. Not everyone loses a family member, but everyone loses something, some part of themselves. It cannot be true salvation if that's not true. 
In fact, one cost every Christian faces is themselves, says Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 24. What did he say? Very clearly, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, and we would insert there, claim Jesus, I'm good with God, I go to church. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's a call to die. If we're being honest, we do not like this one bit, do we? Maybe some of you are like, I just don't like where this is going at all. We love ourselves way too much to lose ourselves. Listen, I love myself way too much for these. I'm with you. I don't like this like you, but I know it's good. And to be clear, this is not losing control. Some spastic losing control. This is the firm control that that says I'm yielding up myself. The book of Daniel has a number of pictures of this. I mean, this is far too important. We must take a minute or two to do this. Turn to Daniel 1, and we need to see this. What is the picture of this? God's word is the same today as it was yesterday, and it'll be the same tomorrow as it is today. Daniel 1, the context of Daniel and his friends called to the king's court, this pagan court in exile, are called, recognized as fit, right? Maybe uh, with an ability, with knowledge, told to eat the king's food. And they declined. Daniel resolved, look at verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And it goes on to say he asked for withdrawal. Verse 16, the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Of course, the account goes on to say, They made it okay, but what's the key here? Daniel denied himself because that was God's way. He was a man of law. He knew what God instructed him to do. Stay away from that pagan luxury. What Daniel didn't do, and this is so important, he didn't pull out Jeremiah 29 and say, come with me, let's look at Jeremiah 29. Doesn't it say, when you're in exile, build houses and plant vineyards and begin to reinterpret What Yahweh simply was saying there is when you're there, live and live as I will provide for you. But we love to reinterpret the Bible, don't we? Where it's fitting for our conveniences. Daniel just said, no, I see, I need to deny myself this food. Daniel 3, remember the statue and the edict, bow down to it. I love this. Let's pick up the account. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, remember, when they won't bow down in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? You can imagine that moment. Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Have you ever done this, reading the Daniel account, and say, what would I do? There's the fiery furnace. You could probably feel the heat. What would you do? What would you do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. O God, may we be so. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I want you to understand, you're going into the fiery furnace. Yeah, be it not so. We will give up our bodies and 
course, then the spectacular, miraculous deliverance. Nebuchadnezzar has nothing to say but verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who, now this is the key, not the miraculous deliverance. Don't miss that in this text. Here's the key of the text. Who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and what? Yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. We are going to need this in the decades that are coming. Right? We need to take our cue from men like this who don't cling to rationalizing God's word and twisting it and say, no, God's way is costly. Then, of course, we could, and I know time is short, go to Daniel 6. Daniel 6. You'll hear this often said, well, certainly, Jason, certainly, Westmount, we can bow to the temporary. Did you not hear this over the past three and a half years? Two weeks. One season, certainly we can bow for a short amount of time. Daniel, when again, a very similar edict is set up by Darius, very, very similar in terms of worshiping wrongly. Look at this, let's just pick it up in verse 6. They're looking to frame him. Last week we talked about how they found no fault. They had to poke holes in the law. Pick it up in verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and sent him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and governors are agreed. The king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. You see that? For 30 days, certainly Christians, we can do this for two weeks or two months or two years. Verse 8, now king established the injunction and signed the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes, the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And Daniel thought about it. Look at the text. And he said, I can do this for 30 days. Isn't that amazing? How he reasoned that I can do this for 30 days. Isn't that amazing? So let's move. No, of course it doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber room toward Jerusalem, and lived God's way. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, and I love this, highlight it, as he had done previously. In other words, no temporary injunction to break God's law is going to prevent me from doing it God's way. Do you see that? Well, may it be true of us. Krishna, do you recognize that following God comes with a cost? Do you recognize that? And what remnant of yourself this morning are you clinging to and afraid to let go? Is it comfort? If we're being honest with you, you just don't want to let go to your comfort, right? Have you been lulled into thinking the Christian life is one of ease? Is it security? Have you been secretly setting up your own little kingdom here on earth and you dare not let it go? Is it luxury? Are you the one that's known for saying, all I'm asking for is this? All I want is that. Is that you? Or are you just seeking to avoid loss and suffering altogether? Is your greatest nightmare any kind of suffering and loss? It's not the way of the Christian. Christian, living God's way means we lose down here. We lose. So give yourself up. We lose. Again, bear with me. Five more minutes. This is just so crucial and important. One more and then a close. God's way is conformity. And I need to say this, that is a very bad word, isn't it? When I was in school, conformity was a very bad word. 
I, as a raging unbeliever in my high school years, wanted nothing to do with conformity. Anti-establishment, swim against the stream, stand out so you get picked out in a good way. And certainly in an individualistic culture, this is the mantra. And you know what happens? We bring that into our Christian life. It's a sovereignty of me. Romans 8, turn there. This is the New Testament teaching. And again, we don't need to linger here with time short because we will be here this fall. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son, not the world, the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is just so important. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. There it is, the worldly bad word, but here is the biblical word, conformity to the Son. Called not to live as they are, but called to be conformed to something new. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind, which is true for the Christian. So negatively Christian, you're not to conform to the world. Positively, you're to be looking more and more like the sun. And that, by the way, is the sum of the whole message in the New Testament epistles. Conformity to Christ. Not politics. Not get out in the marketplace and knock on doors and slap statements and call up your MP. No, no, no. Not that that's bad, but that's not the call. It's not end times eschatology, making sure we get it all right and dovetail my conspiracy theory with this end times. That's not the call. The whole sum of the New Testament epistles is be holy, conform to Christ. That, that's the mandate. Paul's letters are shot through this with this repeated message. For time, I'll just give them to you. Write them down. 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? You're being transformed, right? Being transformed moment by moment at the image of Christ. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 11 to 15, Jerry mentioned this already this morning, that we would all be united and grow into the likeness of the head, growing into Christ. Saints, the New Testament says it on and on. Put on Christ, Colossians 3, Romans 13. And what about Titus, right? That we would be conformed because we are washed. The bride of Christ is conformed to Christ, to grow more and more like him. And, and listen, I would say this by way of application on this point. There's nothing here of feigned humility. Oh, I couldn't. I'm just a lowly Christian. We're all lowly Christians, right? None of us can, can we? None of us is so holy above the rest. We're all in the same boat. And we're all called to conform to Christ, not to live as we are. You're a Christian, and living God's way is not stagnation or more of you with fire insurance. Living God's way means he called you through his son to be in his son, to look like his son. It's his work in you that shapes us. Philippians 2.13, and we close with this, and we must do this. On a message like this, we return to Genesis 3. God's way finally is covering. God's way is covering as the beginning and the end of the Bible presents. God's way is holy. Our way is sinful. From the very beginning, God's way has made a way for us who can't. If we are to read the curse, as we've already peeked in this morning, we would say that there was a promise of covering in verse 15, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Look at verse 20, more covering. The man called his wife's name Eve while waiting for that seed. 
because she was a mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. More covering, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, they need protection. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The Lord God covers with promise, with clothing, and with location. From two people, by the way, to eight people delivered in an ark soon above a flooded earth, Genesis 8. To a nation, a full nation delivered through the waters of judgment, Exodus 14. God's way knows that God is our covering, our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, Psalm 46. God's way sends a son to cover his people and save them from their sins, Matthew 121. How so? That son takes on our wrath, as we've said, delivering us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. And God's way is our covering and our credential in that coming day. A final turn to Revelation 20. From beginning to end, God covers us. This is the end. When we will be exposed, depending on what our covering is. Verse 11, this is the very end. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And note this, beloved. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Look at it. If anyone's name was not covered... Not found written in the book of life. That's it. God's way is covering from the penalty that we rightly deserve. God's way, Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, covers us into eternity and unending fellowship with the Son. Only God's way gets us there and guarantees one can be there. And here's where we close with hope. This is hope. Not what you can do or think you can do. Your hope is in the Son. He's all you have. But he has been given, the Son of God, to you. Listen, our way gets us into condemnation and eternal penalty, right? Our way is impotent to deliver us from that. Understand this, Westmount. Only God's way is covering. Living God's way is the ongoing recognition that we cannot cover ourselves. Living God's way recognizes and rests in the shelter of God. One more minute, because this is vitally important, and your soul may depend on it. That's God's way. And the question as we close this morning in this series is this. This is it. Are you living God's way? That's the question. Are you? God's way is clear, but are you questioning, adding, or blurring with your desires? God's way is countercultural, but are you hanging on to the culture, walking in step with it? God's way is comfort, but are you seeking comfort in temporal escapes under the sun? God's way is contrite, but are you unwilling to humble yourself and repent before him? God's way is costly, but are you avoiding or afraid to endure loss for him? God's way is conformity. 
But are you being shaped more by others or being shaped, quite frankly, by the world? Friends, are you living God's way? My question is not just a daily maintenance. It's an eternal matter. Revelation 22, verse 12, you can look at it. It says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed, here's the hope, are those who wash their robes. They may be, have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There are those inside, do you see it, covered with wash robes, and those outside practicing falsehood. My question to you as we leave this morning, where will you be on that day? Examine yourself now. Are you living God's way? If you're not, listen, you can be right here and now. What a joy it is for me to be a herald of God's word. Can I tell you that? What a joy. You can right now live God's way. My friend, God's way is covering, and I beg you to heed this call today. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Maybe today it's the first time you ever realized you're thirsty. Come. And you, saint, God's way is covering, not just in salvation, but in your sanctification. I urge you to consider your walk today. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. No adding to God's way, Westbound. Can we agree to that? No subtracting to God's way. No did God really say. Let's do this in this new season. Just the clear, holy, and comforting words of God. May we receive them then humbly, counting the cost and conforming to Christ. And as we do, beloved, let us be encouraged. This is what awaits us. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time you've given to us. As we've taken extra time today, Lord, for this very important soul matter, God, may it launch us in, not just to the new season, but into eternity. Oh, God, I pray you will give eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in Christ's name.